Welcome to our backyard. This is the Backyard Philosophy Podcast. We are two friends having a discussion after everyone else has passed out or gone to bed. Grab a drink and listen as we discuss everything from automation, space exploration, and why the meaning of life is 42. this episode, we continue our conversation from episode one, talking about invasive species. Okay, so we are just talking about how great it would be to have seen the world as it is, or uh, not the world, North America, the way it was when uh, Lewis and Clark came through, or Columbus came here. No, we, 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 can, we can spread it to the whole world. The whole world is dealing with invasive species. Let's just Let's just say it'd be nice to see the whole world how it's supposed to look. True. I mean, that'd be awesome. As someone who works out west, I'd really love to see it in the way the people who came through. I mean, their journals describe trees that you could ride your horse under all the way. I mean, that's not what you have now. Very open park-like old growth. I mean, it would just be amazing to see a square mile of land that looks like that. But what we're, I'm here to blow your mind about, Mike, is why is it that we consider invasive species post-1492 species that came here after that invasive and species that came before that native? I imagine it has to deal with colonialism and, and imperialism. That's right. I mean, that's basically what happened is, and this is a thing that humans today are very guilty of is that we are unable as a species a relatively short-lived species in the natural time frame able to realize our role in the ecosystem and we often fail to see the changes that's natural to nature very very often we see people say oh man like that fire was so terrible and it destroyed all this habitat, and logging is so terrible, destroyed all that habitat, whereas we often fail to recognize that disturbance such as fire and logging and diseases is as much a part of nature as it is a part of humanity. So I like to give people an example. You know, people often ask, well, what is it, when is a tree, like, you know, when does it sequester the most carbon? When is it the most useful? Say, well, I mean, just think about people. When are people the most active? When do they do the most? Between the ages of 13 to 40, humans, much like coastal trees, are the most active. I mean, it's going to vary depending on your moisture content and all that. But for the most part, trees grow the most, sequester the most carbon when they are young. However, there's certain factors that drive the age of trees and drive the age of forests and ecosystems a lot of that are you know you have diseases you have fire and you have animals you know even humans for the longest time the people who lived here native americans they're big proponents of fire they would regularly burn areas for for planting different crops and just for habitat i mean to bring elk back to graze because different grasses that the elk like thrive on those uh, grasses that come back after a fire, those early secessional species. And so we, me and 
it's one of my coworkers who've been talking a lot about this is what defines an invasive species. Now, don't get me wrong, we're still going to kill and treat every invasive plant we have in our property to allow our trees to grow and to maintain that natural habitat. We want, you know, we want to be looked on, you know, growing trees is is a business, but like any business, you need a as much a government license to operate as you do a a social license to operate. And we want to be seen as the good guys. So we're going to continue to take care of our land above and beyond what other people are taking care of the land because we want to improve habitat for deer or elk, salmon, mink, whatever, beaver, whatever animal it is. We want to have the best habitat. And I think we've been shown to have it. But my question is, is why is it that these species that come in and they're just filling a niche, that's what all any species does in nature is they find a hole that's not being filled and they fill it. Why is it that we say that they're bad even though we're going to go how to kind of go backwards, but talk about, let's talk about, we didn't talk about too much, but zebra mussels, they're doing a lot of damage to industry, doing a lot of damage to the native habitat, but they're also removing a lot of toxins from the water. Even carp is removing a lot of toxins from the water. So that's just nature doing nature. I mean, look at Hawaii. You know, at one point, Hawaii was just a bunch of rocks, and now it's this entirely diverse, like completely diverse habitat for all these different species. So what is it that we look at and say, anything post-1492 bad, pre-1492 good? I get it provide it you know it's a cause of economic disturbance and trust me like i am on the side of we need to treat these species allow our native species to grow but it is it is kind of weird that there's a specific date and time that we can look back and say good and bad isn't it yes and no so i want to start off by premising that to everyone listening that these are complicated to- topics there's no there's no really one side because I know a lot of people are for logging. A lot of people are against logging. It's it's not cut and dry. It's there are reasons why we do it for a reason, and it's it's important to remember that going through to keep an open mind in this. But to me, I was never made the cutoff date of 1492. To me, invasive species has always been a plant, animal, or disease that was brought in by humans that would have not come without human intervention. To me, that's what my definition of invasive species. Like, you, like a couple weeks ago, you blew my mind about bass, how bass is an introduced species to the Americas. So ba- bass is native to the Great Lakes, but it's introduced out here. So like out west, I, down in Texas, they probably wouldn't have had bass if it weren't for humans. Now, even... Even out here, we're so far away from the Great Lakes. I cannot imagine a world without bass. Large mouth, small mouth. I mean, it just, it doesn't make any sense. Like, I just could not comprehend. But can you, like, so that's what I would say when we talked about the beginning, a naturalized versus an invasive. Now, I'd say bass are naturalized species. They're able to fit into the food chain, and it's not a huge deal like they're they're still leaving space for other species they yeah they dominate most of the 
they dominate most of the ecosystem. You know, they're pretty good predators, but they're not going to completely push out your native trout or whatever it is that's native to that ground. However, they are going to reduce it. So I agree with that statement. Like like the like the pigs in Hawaii. Like pigs aren't native to Hawaii. They were brought over, but now they're so ingrained into Hawaiian culture and the Hawaiian island that removing them just it doesn't make sense. It's like it's like it's like removing the American chestnut off that one island where it survived off of. Yeah. And so that's that's the problem that it comes to is that it's hard to determine what's what's native and what's invasive like i mentioned earlier um rainbow trout in eastern idaho they're a completely invasive species they were introduced by humans 100 percent for the purpose of sport fishing they haven't destroyed the native ecology but they haven't helped it they've hindered it they haven't completely demolished it but they haven't helped it. See, I, I don't, I don't like when how you say they ha- haven't pause demolished it. That makes me a bit uncomfortable because to me, I'm thinking evolution. Well, the best ones are going to survive and they're going to be more adapt to it and become more dominant. I'm more worried about that because everything seems like a good idea at the time, but hindsight's twenty twenty. Like, I assume, but going back to Asian carp, that it was a good idea to introduce them to clean their lakes, et cetera, like that, because they are bottom feeders. But they escaped, they adapted, and now they dominate. Feel the same with, you know, some things we can't just help, like insects getting trapped on carrier planes and being brought over and devastating an industry. But the ones we can help, like the rainbow trout, or even farther back, like the bass, is maybe we shouldn't have done it. Maybe we don't introduce species unless a drastic measure needs to be taken. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's what I'm saying is that, you know, I, I don't know what's where the line is. I, I know I'm going to continue to, me personally, I would love to see. Yeah, read some of the journals of some of the first people to come visit out west and how it was like. And I guess it probably doesn't mean much to you because you don't see this same, very same land, same soil, same bedrock that all of this ecosystem, that this environment they saw was on. But it's completely different out here. And I'm not, you know, everyone's like, oh, it's because of the logging companies, blah, blah, blah. It's like, yeah. It's because of logging companies, but it's also because of everyone who moved into Portland, everyone who moved into Seattle. You know, manifest destiny is real, and people who think that they're above it aren't. I mean, if you moved out west, you settled land that previously was unsettled when people started moving out west. I did the same thing. I'm not judging you. I'm just saying that don't think just because you weren't that first guy to move out west, you're above it. I mean, this is, there's land out here that, there's so much public land out here and private land. It, it's it's insane. I mean, it's just such a beautiful place. But the problem is, it's not the same land that people originally saw, which is fine. Because like I mentioned earlier, nature is cyclical. I mean, you can time some of these larger fires, larger events back hundreds of years, 
And if there's one thing humans are good at, it's finding a pattern. And we can find these patterns in nature. We can f- do all of that. And it's very real. So we are a really good judge of what's going to happen. It throws a little bit of wrench of it when you throw in these species. You don't know who's exactly going to colonize. But in the long run, in the long run, it's going to return to somewhat normal. I mean, Scotchroom can only grow so tall. And you have your understory trees that are better at absorbing uh, minimal amounts of light, like your big leaf maples and your western red cedars are going to come out and just form the next phase of secession. See, I disagree with that. So there are some big fish, the last great big fish in the Great Lake and of Michigan and the other Great Lakes. can't think of the name of it, but it's nearly extinct because... You talking about sturgeon? No. No, 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 no. I can't quite remember the name, but hindsight's always twenty twenty. but I don't always think it will rebalance correctly. Now, I believe, like, hu- like without human intervention, nature will sort of correct itself, but maybe not correct itself to a healthy place, but maybe correct itself to simply survive and i want to make sure that nature is thriving and living not just surviving not just a well this new species came in devastated this but they didn't devastate these so these are new apex if that happened naturally i'm okay with it because that's thousands of years of evolution species moving around that happened without human intervention. I kind of draw the line at human intervention of invasive species because... All right. Well, here, here's here's a random example off the top of my head. Say a swallow carries a coconut, and the, the coconut flourishes. I was waiting for you to pick up on the Monty Python reference, but whatever. It's uh, it's, it's it's okay. It, it Well, it could be an African. So I was waiting for yeah. that. Anyway, but what I'm saying is not all the time are these interventions we think are humans are humans. What, what I'm trying to say is that the time scale of nature is very different than time scale of man. That at certain point, all, I mean, at some time in the past, Idaho, cold, frigid Idaho, again, another place no one should visit and or move to, um, it shared almost an identical climate and plant species to current day China and Japan. Oh, yes. I mean, the scale of humans to the earth to the universe is we're a drop in a bucket. Like Antarctica used to be tropic and have dinosaurs on it. Now it's a frozen tundra. But, again, I think humans might be exacerbating and speeding up some cycles that take time. And if you rush something, it's a shock to the system. So, like, uh, for example, going back to the bird carrying a coconut. Well, some of the islands in the Philippines and the Galapagos and Hawaii, the reason why they have grass on those islands is because birds brought them there and the volcano rock eventually seeded the grass and grew and that took time time enough for things to settle to adjust to adapt as humans we want things done now and we want them fast but 
sometimes fast is not the right way. So like bass, for example, going back is I like bass fishing. It's probably one of my favorite things to do, just relax and throw a line out there. But I would love to see how what fish would have flourished without the introduction of bass hundreds of years ago to different lakes and rivers. Yeah, I mean, that's same. Like right here where I'm at, uh, the Umpqua, it's a large river, completely overrun with smallmouth bass. And they got released. There is a, I believe out here it's called a tsunami because we're on the West Coast, um, flooded a hatchery, smallmouth got into the umqua river and now you can find them at four i believe 400 fish a square mile they're everywhere and they choke four wait 400 400 fish per square mile yeah and uh it's jesus that's from what i've been fishing probably an underestimate um granted i've only caught the small fish uh disclaimer However, I have caught a lot of small fish. Me and my buddies, we go out and we kayak and we'll just float down to the river and we'll catch smallmouth after smallmouth. It's super easy. I mean, they're everywhere. They're bass. They're aggressive. I mean, that's that's part of the fun of bass fishing, which is why it's like one of those things where I wish there were native species, but man, it's fun to catch bass. That's <laughs> Oh, it is fun. It is so fun. They're good fighters. They're aggressive. I mean, in a game fish, that's what you want. Uh, I'm happy you brought up the tsunami flooding the hatchery. I kept seeing how invasive species were flourishing and coming and started because the lack. I, I, I now don't get scared here, but the lack of government regulations and rules. I think we need to change that. Those are those are the two greatest words I could ever hear three greatest words <laughs> i think i think we need to add more regulation and rules at least like like you just said the small bass it got flooded and now it's overrunning a river the asian carp uh big flood overrunning the river people had pets pythons over flooding florida wild hogs escaped and now they're overrunning uh people brought plants over to have as decorative plants and now they're overrunning Maybe we need to set in new rules and laws and regulations for having a non non domestic species in the country or a a county or state. Just have least safety precautions that they won't escape and cause more problems. At least, at least, I think we should. What What was your opinion on it? Well, I have. A few opinions. The first is that should be done on a, a state-by-state basis, a case-by-case basis. Like, here, here's the issue to me. Is the gov- federal government slow, lethargic, responsive? Whereas, uh, you know, I work in the timber industry. The Oregon Department of Forestry, good guys. They know what they're doing. If you leave it up to the local people, they're going to have a lot better grasp of what's invasive, what's not. As soon as you start doing big sweeping federal level mandates, it doesn't work. Like I mentioned earlier, the federal government's response to invasive species is early detection, rapid response. We've been begging the federal government to let us 
treat their invasive species on their land native to our ground for two plus years, the same plants. Early detection, rapid response, great slogan. Until you actually do anything, it's completely useless. So if you wanted to make that a county wanted to, wanted to do something, that's great. I would love to see counties promote only indigenous species for uh, like neighborhoods and lawns and whatnot. That would be awesome. But I don't see that coming, especially because everyone likes their lawn a certain way. The same reason most of these plants got here is because humans tie an extremely emotional value to plants. I mean, I'm guilty for myself. I love trees. I mean, I got my freaking wedding ring. My wedding ring has wood in it because I love trees so much. For those listening, Nick is uh, definitely a tree hugger and sometimes more. Wink, wink. Hey, I will cut down every other tree because that is ecologically what may or may not should happen. It depends. Depends on the stand. Anyway, we're getting off topic. Um, Hang on. I want to I wanna run back what you, you just went over a little bit. So I agree and disagree. I completely agree the natives, the people who are there, the people who are boots on the ground know what's done. They know it should be done and know how it should be done. But when it comes to exotic pets, maybe, maybe have that be federal. Like you have to prove that you're able to take care of it throughout its entire cycle. Like a lot of people got rid of the pythons because they got simply got too big. If you can prove that you have a large enough tank for it, large enough area for it to roam, then you can have it or have make it so you have to have more permits or background checks in order to get it. I think that would be good federally, but I like the state idea because no one know, no one knows your someone's home more than the people who live at the home. So I, I like the state idea. I like having let the state do its thing. But I do think some federal things need to be in place to protect native species and protect against invasive species, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, he, like what I was saying is, I like, it'd be great. Like, I mean, like I said, the federal government is one of the biggest landowners out west. However, their early detection rapid response is late detection, late response. I mean, they don't really do anything. Whereas a lot of the, like like I said, Oregon Department of Forestry people who I work with on the regular, they know what's up. They know what we need to do. And they want to they wanna bring back the natural habitat as much as we do. I mean, we, are, we all work here and live here. This is our land. The federal people tend to be less local. They tend to be East Coast educated, not complete experts on this specific area. And a lot of the times... Even federal regulation doesn't lead to federal action, which is probably the biggest problem. I think that they need a complete reworking to come back to what would actually be actionable. And so what I would like to see is I'd like to see, which we already have, but it's not enforced, is um, I've seen several signs up throughout the counties of removing invasive species from people's lawn and don't plant this and don't plant that and invasive species only in different nurseries. And I think that's a very important topic that people need to talk about, you know, it, and 
it needs it, it does need to be a national topic because if everyone agrees on it except for a few counties it doesn't matter because those counties are going to bring the seed source for those other counties how about how about i'm find a compromise with you we let the federal handle the education knowledge and backup to state funding and let the states actually do the groundwork so federal is more focused on educating people hey this is bad for the environment and this is why because i think a big problem with the reason why invasive species are being overrun is a lack of uh money and resources i mean that one's kind of obvious i don't think we're putting enough time and effort into it uh, as a nation as whole but b i also think education because i think a lot of people like oh it's just a pretty plant it won't hurt anything oh it's just one tree why does it matter it it's the little things that add up and like you said like people don't want to change because of their grass like they want it to look a certain way i think maybe like say uh government uh facilities government visit like uh like police stations say like a like a forest service ranger site or a blm campground yes they have 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 their grass be native show what the other side show the the grass is greener on the other side uh have show by example what it could be and maybe people are like hey all these other ones grass looks different maybe we should join them or maybe make regulations for the state to say hey listen you can save more money we'll cut you like a tax break if you for the construction workers who make a house or property going hey we use native grass and not yeah no i mean that's a good idea i mean we as a society we need to encourage native plant growth i mean it's it's a yeah, invasive species are bad. They're going to continue to push out native species. But if we humans, who are the majority, we are in charge of all the land. If we can do our part to promote native plant growth, I mean, just think of it as like a lottery. In each native plant, you're throwing another lottery ticket in for a native plant. Every invasive species is throwing in say 50 50 tickets and you throw in one but if your neighbor throws in one and their neighbor throws in one and soon enough everyone's throwing in a native species ticket and then you have an actual competition right now you're getting shut out because these invasive species are so good at reproducing no i would like to see that i would like to see the native like the the locals handle the you know the the meat and potatoes of it but if the federal government got involved, I mean, here's the thing that that's crazy is we argue about this and that in politics. But I think 90 percent of Americans believe that invasive species are bad. Why is that not something we can't rally around? We're all on the same side. And I people forget, I think, forget that. But I think leading by example, like have those state buildings, those federal buildings all have those native species to that area i think would show by example and show leadership and i'd be very much for like could you uh imagine driving by and seeing the public library and you see a native tree outside the library in the grass with a bench right underneath the native tree so you can you can take a kid to the library 
check out a book and read underneath a tree that is supposed to be in the area and not introduced. I think that'd be very wonderful. Even better is uh, we we do a thing with our our company where we take kids out and they plant the trees so they can come back the next forty years and look at those trees that they planted. I mean, you need to get you need to get people involved in the environment, and I mean, I think this is going to be a major theme in every single topic we cover, is that people need to become involved in it because right now as humans we're so specialized in our individual roles as we very oftentimes overlook for a lot of reasons we think that our area of study is the only area of study that utilizes science and everyone else is just an idiot especially when it comes to land management we look at people like lawn keepers and all this stuff as people who may not have the schooling but a lot of times they're a lot more educated on native species than anyone else around but because their job seems beneath us is what people think that they don't have the 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 know the wherewithal to know about these things. But a lot of times they're going to be the best people to tell you what to plant, what's native and what's not. And we just think we want the prettiest thing when really as humans, we should be planting, you know, air, species that are native to this area hopefully helpful to the economy i mean helpful to bees which is crazy i mean most honeybees are invasive anyway so it's like where do you go from there but you know we need to start planting more native things in our ground especially i think we need to get away from uh, lawns i mean lawns it's not natural to have green lawn all year round that's not an actual thing i mean out in nature you don't see that grasses go dormant in the summer that's just they don't they don't have enough water they go dormant just like any other plant. I want to I want to before we get too far away. I want to say I agree with a lot you said. I agree that uh, I'm guilty of it just not knowing the other side or knowing information on a topic has made me make ignorant decisions on stuff. Like invasive species like I know it was bad. I mean, I I like we talk about the schoolwork cuz that's how I got into it like in middle school we took a couple classes out and we would get rid of a uh, honeysuckle and buckthorn and i mean it, it gives you a taste of it but when i start doing the actual research of it like not only does it affect the environment does not only affect native species not only does it affect people's home not only does it affect industries businesses it it's just amazing how everything and every topic and every industry is just all connected so, something as simple as buying apples Usually, apples are cheap, apples are great, but an invasive species like the brown stink bug causes apple growers like $37, $38 million in economic injury a year, and that then affects the, and then affects the prices of apples, which then affects people's ability to buy apples, which then affects people's uh, you know nutrition, and so you can't buy stuff. And I think just the lack of knowledge and education about invasive species is something we should like address like i think schools should definitely teach it more heavily definitely more pamphlets like maybe the local newspaper once a season so like hey springs because i know for honeysuckle out in the midwest 
it's very prominent in the spring and fall because it's the first up in spring and the last with berries in the fall. So it's easy to pick and uh, get rid of. So I imagine like if some once once a season for a local newspaper like hey look out for these invasive species during this time this season so and tell us about it at this number so we can get rid of it i think that education and that in your face like hey this is important pay attention to it even even if one out of 20 people do it that's still more people to the side of helping the environment which i'm all for but i want i just want to say i agreed with mo- almost everything you said there yeah, and like us, um, I had a friend I went to college with, Leslie, who works in uh, she. What did she do? Something with what are those uh, monarch butterflies? She's a great advocate for that and fire, and just a, a good person. But she's focused most of her career on um, kind of education of the public, which is something that I'm too not not really my forte. A little bit too much swearing and a little bit too much get her done but it's a it's a it's probably the most important part and i mean out of anything that any of us do is i could manage our the land i work for spectacular but if she manages to affect say 10 percent of the people she talks to and turns their habitat into natural habitat for monarch butterflies and native insects at the end of the day she's going to have a much bigger inse- or b- bigger impact than I am on the environment, even if I manage thousands of acres. Oh, inches add up. Inches by inches add up. If everyone, like, hey, re- like, remove, like, even if they just manage their own property, like, they have a house, they have land, like, oh, this isn't supposed to be here, removed it. Uh, it it's like picking up trash. Just one little bit can have a huge impact on the environment, especially if everyone does it. Yeah, and I think that's that's the issue that needs to be going across schools and people need to be talking about is that what you do, it does matter, especially because, I mean, just think about where we grew up. How much of that is native habitat? Probably like, what, 2 3%? The only, the only place I can think we grew up that was even natural is the Little Red Schoolhouse by the Forest Preserves by us. Yeah, so uh, if we start putting native habitat in people's houses that'd be corridors we could start building corridors of native habitat you start bringing native insects back all this stuff and you would have less reliance on water you know here's the thing about living in a suburb you don't have to worry about the plants next to your house catching fire and burning your house down if you live out in the wildland or out in the out in the woods you can have completely native habitat as long as your HOA allows it. And if not, that's something that you guys should change because right now we're can, we're a growing human population. We're running out of water. I mean, we're going to continue to take it from rivers, but at the cost of fish. So you guys decide, you know, I mean, that's a decision we have to make. But at the same time, you like this. Uh, so when doing research on uh, this subject, uh, this man in Texas, yes, I know, Texas again, glorious Texas, uh, he had land that was just barren. Is it Think like Wild West Desert, and that was it. And it rained there. It rained there a lot, and it had 
rocks and the foundation to hold water, but it just really wasn't holding water. Well, he found a simple solution. I really wish I knew the man's name, so I'd give him a shout out, but he planted native grass and native trees and the water stayed and birds came back to the area. Natural animals came back to the area. The grass helped root, the natural grass helped rooted the soil. So when water came, it would help soak it up and help store the water and which allowed water to then pool into rivers and little ponds, which then brought the wildlife back. Simply just introducing some native grass and some trees made it looked like a new Eden. It went from a barren desert to a glorious field full of wildlife. It's something so simple. Like I like completely agree. If your HOA doesn't allow it, that's that's something to be issue. Like, hey, this plant was actually here way before any of us were here. Can I uh, plant it? Because it says right here I can't. You, you got to fight on that one. A- every inch matters. Yeah, I mean that's the thing with humans. You know, we are really good at what we do, and that is change our ecosystem. We manipulate it to serve us, which is what we do. It's enabled us to grow. It's enabled us to specialize. It's enabled our society to evolve. However, we're at the point now where we realize what the effects we're doing to the environment, and we need to be like, hey, let's step, take a step back and say, is this green, well-mowed lawn more important to society as a whole than some native grasses that can help the local insect population which will help the local fish population help the local mammal population say raccoons eat it or whatever whatnot that can increase up the food chain or is it more important to have the like 1970s american dream house i mean there's just so many different like aspects that you know just one of the things I'm, I'm going to continue to talk about is, you know, I, I live out here out west. The Umqua River is a big river system by us. In the 70s, we removed, not we, I mean, I wasn't part of it, but humanity removed 400-something pieces of downed woody debris from the river per square mile, thinking that it would improve fish habitat because it would, the thought was, well, now the fish have nothing to swim up against when they f- swim up river to mate. That wasn't that long ago that we removed every single piece of debris from that river. If anyone knows anything about uh, fish habitat, it's all about structure. It's about places where fish can rest as swim up river. We did the exact opposite because at the time, that's what we thought science wanted. We need to continue to listen to what the science is coming out and saying. People are coming out and saying, hey, like, yeah, green grasses, not not doing that well. You know, if you can, if you mulch, if you don't throw out your clippings and you recycle it back and cut it all the time, you're gonna have better soil, but you're not gonna have better habitat for local uh, insects, local animals, none of that. So I think we need to start looking forward instead of backwards. Like just because your parents have this awesome grass doesn't mean that you need to do the same thing. It, you know, each land manager is responsible for their own land. They need to figure out what they need to do. But it's it's worth looking to think about what are the effects of your green grass on everyone else. Yeah, it does get tricky. Do you 
Because I'm always for if someone wants to do something and it doesn't hurt anyone, let them do it. But having an invasive species or stuff like that is such a impactful thing. It's something so small, but it just ripples out so largely that I think you're correct where, yes, our parents had it, but... Our parents also did a lot of things where we wouldn't do today or we think are wrong today. So why not learn from the history? Science gives us the science. I always like to say science gives us the answer. History tells us how to use it. Now, I, I completely agree with the science. The science says, hey, if we stop using this plant and introduce back this old plant, this and this will happen. Yeah, that's not as pretty, but all these other benefits will come with it. All these ripple effects of it. Because I, like this past weekend, I went hiking with some buddies and uh, was walking around, walking around, and saw across this uh, river that was just eroded away and it was in depth, saw a cottonmouth snake on the, on the bank and just fell in love with it. And I can't imagine if we, I don't know, introduced a, I don't know, say the python from... Florida, say somehow adapted to live in the desert and it just took over the cottonmouth. It wouldn't feel right anymore. And I think it's our responsibility as to be caretakers for this planet. So I guess I'm going to ask you, Nick, what do you think would be good steps to come up with rules for people's homes? Like, should we allow people to do what they want with plant life or animal life or do you think we should control a little bit like hey you can't have this plant here anymore all right so you bring up a good point and i have to answer that in two ways i'm going to answer that in a policy perspective and then maybe i'll touch on it in my personal view but so we're going to take a look at first new zealand so new zealand uh, they have a lot of different crops, and the fun thing about New Zealand is they're the complete opposite of the U.S. in terms of wood products. So I grow trees. Trees turn into boards, turn into lumber, turn into decks, houses, all that good stuff that everyone loves to grow, grow and build and do whatever with. I mean, it's the, the backbone of this nation. People have been logging since the Bible. We'll probably have to do an episode on that later, but now is not the time. So New Zealand, they have what's called a, you know, they have a whitelist. They have a list of things that can come into the country that are allowed. And those things are all tested and determined to be safe for their, not only their native ecosystem, but what crops they're growing there. So they grow trees, like I was saying, a lot different from us. How a lot of times in the U.S. people look at a clear cut and be like, wow, that's ugly and how could they do that? In New Zealand, like, oh, thank God. I hate those trees ruining my view. If you, That's the complete opposite out here. Oh, it's absolutely. I, if I'm not mistaken, because we both grew up in Illinois. Illinois used to be trees and grass fields. Like you could see miles inside a forest because it was just no shrubbery. It was just gra wild grass and trees. But going back to New Zealand, if I'm not mistaken, the reason why New Zealand did all this was because they're having a invasive species attack all their native birds. If I remember that correctly, I'm not I'm not quite sure, but 
if I remember correctly, there's a species right now that I, I don't remember what kind of animal it is that's just killing all the native birds, and that's why they crack down on their invasive species laws. I, am I just making this up in my head, or is, is are you familiar with that? Uh, no, I'm not too familiar with birds. If you could bring it somewhere back to trees, I could probably help you out. But uh... <laughs> No, I'm just saying that's where the trees came from, like the regulation on invasive species such like, or the, like the logging and stuff like that and conservation of nature is because they had a problem uh, with their birds. Yeah, you know, I'm not too sure. I know, uh, you know, like we talked about earlier, predator exclusion, where you don't have any predators, any for trees. That's that's anyone hogging light resources, any diseases, any natural predators like uh, bark beetles or woodpeckers, anything like that. They don't have any of that in New Zealand. So their main goal was to keep anything out that their private businesses depended on. So I'm sure that's. You know, most governments are reactive, so there's probably something like those birds you're talking about that started the whole wheels turning of anti this, which turned them into a white system, whereas the U.S. is a black system. If you're on the black list, you can't come in, but anything else is allowed in. Even if it may be harmful, it hasn't been documented as harmful, it's allowed in. The problem with the U.S. versus New Zealand is the U.S. sees such a wide array of things compared to new zealand a small island nation you know it's it'd be hard to have a whitelist so you know that's the thing that's up to politicians to figure out what's going to work for us and what's not going to work for us yeah uh, that is interesting i didn't know about the whitelist and blacklist and uh just to alliterate i just did a quick google it was it was rats mice and uh uh what was what was the third species Mainly rats, rat, female rats and ma uh, male rats are the main reason for a huge habitat loss for uh, birds native to New Zealand. And fun fact, rats also huge uh, for trout fishing in New Zealand. Look it up. Look up uh, You're the You're the Rat. It's a good video. Anyway, keep going. Uh, well, we could do a whole topic on rats and their impact on the environment because they're for the most part, invasive species everywhere, if I'm not mistaken. So I, how many, we've done one episode so far and spawned like three episodes we need to do? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. I feel like uh, you're going to get sick of my voice, Nick, because you can hear me a lot. Yeah, I believe that. <laughs> but going back to the whitelist and blacklist, like you were saying, like uh, I think it goes back to regulation of, hey, this is dangerous. Yeah, you should have what you want, but as a whole, this is very negative to society. Can you prove you can have it if you can prove that you're a responsible owner and you can take care of it? Yeah. Well, I mean that's that's a thing. I mean it's it's important for people to prove that they can take care of what's on their property, but the issue is you got two issues. One, who's regulating that? Is it the locals and do they have time to stop at every individual's house? And two, are those individuals going to be receptive? I mean, most people are, you know, they're going to be like, no, F you. Like, I'm not doing that. You, you want to come remove them? You can pay for it. If not, it's my, my property. Well, mm, you may, you made me uh, think of a kind of a little bit off track subject, but 
Uh, with back to trees, I love working with my hands. I love working with wood, metal, plastics, and sometimes I like using exotic woods for a project I'm working on just to, you know, make it look beautiful or pretty or uh, a certain aesthetic that I'm going for. And I know for some businesses that their jobs are to grow these foreign uh, plants and trees on U.S. soil in order to cheapen the price on exotic woods. How do you feel about that? Because to me, it feels like it's a high high risk, low reward. Like, yes, it makes exotic woods cheaper, but it also has a risk of those invasive species, well, not, not, not invasive species yet, but that foreign species becoming an invasive species. All right, well, this is a whole can of worms, so thanks for opening that. Um, <laughs> so here, here's how I feel about it. Uh, in the U.S., you know, if you have the right people doing it, which I think a major forestry company, you're going to have the right people for the job doing it. They understand the risks and the rewards. You're going to have a well-managed ground. What I am scared is some random person being like, hey, we can make a bunch of money off this zebra wood. We can just grow it. It's not going to be an issue. And maybe it's not, maybe it is, but not having the background know tell the difference between what is or isn't going to be an invasive species. You know, the nice thing about the U.S. is most foresters, pretty much every forester has been to some kind of larger school. They see the pros and cons of invasive species, land management. It's a, it's a, it's a huge thing throughout your career of, it's a, it's part technical, but part philosophical. I mean, anyone who's, and land management has probably read Aldo Leopold's um, Sand County Almanac. I mean, that's probably the uh, I, w- I want to say I want to say like Bible for land managers. It lay- lays down all the groundwork, and there's you know people have come before and after, but that's pretty much the subject. And uh, so we know you know what plants are going to do what to what and how everything's going to behave. And there's certain species where you can feel safe growing in not their native habitat because they're not going to spread. I mean, the research has to have been done, but you can look at it and you can see, okay, this species isn't going to grow. Just look at modern agriculture in the U.S. Avocados in California, they're not native there. We can grow them fine. They're not going to spread. I mean, we have to use more water than the native land provides, but... The American consumer wants more avocados, so we're going to give them to them. I mean, that's, you know, people blame the farmer, but if the consumer demands it, what can you say? So I'd say in the long run, I think it's more up to the consumer than it is to the person producing it. You you gave me nightmares when you said, when, well, I'm just thinking of some random person going, oh, I can grow that without thinking about the consequences. Because if someone we went to high school with, became a quote-unquote god i i this is it just feels weird saying it but like exotic animal maker he bred like uh foreign reptiles and foreign amphibians to sell them and it i wouldn't trust that man to tell me what time it is let alone do that and i is wait hold on is his first name spencer yes (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, okay. Keep, keep going. <laughs> we, yeah, all right. We are not going to uh, just, yeah, all right. Well, anyhow, sometimes, like, I, I like I like greenhouses. I think greenhouses are a great idea because, like, if we put, like, a tropical plant, like, um, uh, I'm trying to think of a, a plant, but if we put, like, aloe. Okay, sure. We put aloe in a northern environment in a greenhouse where it can grow, and that way we can produce it, like, something a little bit more exotic, maybe, or something like that. We lose the risk of it becoming an invasive species because if it gets out, you know, someone's shoes, it, it, someone's shoes tracks it, or uh, it gets on someone's, the pollen gets on someone's clothing, it won't survive there because it'll be in the wrong environment. And I, I like I like that idea. It kind of puts a little safety net uh, for human ignorance. Because, like, I, I know the Galapagos is having a problem with invasive species right now, even though they've been very, very diligent of trying to protect it. I mean, talk about life finds a way. Like, you still have to have brand new shoes, clean your shoes when you get there, make sure nothing off the boat, stuff like that. But just having human interaction is introducing invasive species. So, I don't know. I lost track where I was going to go there, but I was going to just Well, talk. I, th- I think it's a, it's a good point, like you were talking about the, the Galapagos, which is, I mean, anyone who works in natural resources, Charles Darwin, local hero, local enemy, whatever you want to call him, uh, definitely did a lot for the science. And like we're currently going, to, planning for a trip up to Alaska, and it's during COVID, and everyone's worried about viruses, but you know what I'm worried about? Cleaning all of my equipment free of our local invasive species, because I don't want to be the guy who brings our local invasives up north, because, you know, COVID probably going to last a few years, invasive species will last forever, and that's that's my biggest fear. Of, like, the only reason I don't want to go to Alaska is bringing any species because I am out in the weeds with these things every day. If just one seed is on me, it could it could be the one that starts it up there, and I don't want to be the one responsible for that. I would be very curious on how many people actually even think about that before going on vacation. Because I, I don't think I, I'll be honest, I don't think I've ever thought about that. I've been to different countries, different states, different stuff like that. I've, I, you know, try to be a clean person and stuff like that, but I can't imagine what my car, like driving, like doing a road trip, if that brought anything with, that's, that's something I'm definitely going to be a little bit more considerate and think about now. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, these seeds, they'll pick up on anything. They'll get on your car. Uh, That's one of the big problems with, you know, with logging is, We'll, we'll log a unit and uh, say, even though it's the law, say, for example, someone forgets to clean up their equipment or doesn't do a perfect job, you can easily move an invasive to the next. Now, as local land managers, we are very good about knowing, hey, you're in an area with gorse, you're moving to an area without it, you better clean your equipment really well. If we find gorse in the next unit, we know where it came from, and your ass is going to be liable. So... They're not liable, but we're going to know where it came from. So it's it's important to let those local land managers do what they're going to do because they know the hot spots and they know how to keep invasives out of them. And it's 
Like I said, the federal policy, early detection, rapid response, great policy. They don't implement it, but it's a good policy. I mean, you got to be fast. Well, yeah, that speed is everything. But you do know if you if now there's an invasive species in Alaska, I after you go, I am going to blame you forever. You do know that, right? <laughs> yeah, you wish. I've washed everything. I've I've taken tweezers and picked out seeds out of my backpack. So you're I'd be pretty impressed. I'll plant it on you. I'll destroy the world just to just to have one laugh at you. <laughs> but that is interesting. Oh, you would, I didn't I did not know you guys had to clean your equipment. I I didn't even think about that uh, cuz I'm not in that industry that you have to clean your equipment before moving to the next site. That's very interesting. Yeah, it's a pretty common practice. It's uh I mean out here at least you know i can't speak to you know i specialize out west so i'm not going to talk about agriculture in the east but out here cleaning your equipment very common practice getting rid of all those seeds i mean the like like we talked about earlier the u.s general estimate of total direct and indirect use of invasive species uh, 143 billion dollars I mean, for we're a medium-sized timber company. Locally, we're big. Nationally, we're tiny. But, yeah, it's a huge amount of money we spend. And it's it's insane. I mean, how much money we actually spend fighting invasive species. It's a, it's a, so the most, I mean, just like anything, if you can spend a dollar in prevention, you only have to spend 50 cents in suppression. So the more money you spend preventing it, the less you have to spend suppressing it. I'm, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, if you don't mind me asking, uh, A, what is some methods that you guys clean your equipment? Because I would be very curious. Are you guys like using alcohol or are you guys using like tweezers uh, going through everything with a fine comb? And B, what are some good tips to stop invasive species? Like I know for me is... Before you go into a forest preserve, make sure you wipe your feet. You don't know what you're bringing with and stuff like that. So let's just start off with your equipment. How do you clean your equipment to not transfer to different job sites? So the first thing you're going to do is you're going to clean with like a some kind of power washer. Just like clean everything off of it. Um, so you, you do that and, you know, you get all your dirt and stuff off of it and even your dirt is going to have those small very fine seed particles in it and then you know another thing to check is your uh wherever your vehicle or equipment your air intake is for your cooling system it's going to suck all that air in and that air is going to hold all your seeds and stuff like that and that's where a lot of your uh material is going to be sitting so you're going to want to get rid of that. I mean, that's a that's a big one. In your wheels, your treads, whatever it is that however your vehicle equipment moves, um, that's another big area that spreads disease or spreads seeds. So, but yeah. I didn't even think about the air intake. I, I mean, I thought about tires and undercarriage, but I didn't even think about the air intake for spreading invasive uh, plants. Yeah, well, and the issue is like, say for scotch broom out here it's resistant to fire chemicals i mean you're not going to kill it you can remove it from your vehicle but you're not going to be able to kill it so you're basically just putting it on the ground by your house but if you put it on the ground by your house 
Odds are you're going to be more effective than the federal government. You're going to be able to pull that by yourself. If you're going to recognize a weed, get rid of it. The government, they might take years to respond. By that time, it's been able to reproduce. It's spread a couple thousand seeds. At that point, th- those seeds can survive for 50 plus years. There's nothing you can do. Yeah, I don't think we. I can stress it enough that a lot of these invasive species, they can just produce so much offspring, whether it be seeds or, 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 uh, offsprings of live animals. They just can go so much so fast. A, a day could feel like a year. Of like, I mean, like you said, one seedling could have hundreds of seeds and just spread an entire area. Or I don't know how fast uh small uh bass fish can produce but i imagine if there's that many then it very quickly can produce even more and it will just spread even farther i mean have you ever caught a pregnant fish i mean you can feel the stomach each of those each of those uh what do you call it eggs has a fish in it if they're fertilized i mean they're you know they're prolific breeders just like any other quote-unquote invasive species are Again, love bass, continue to fish for bass. They're just not native to where I'm at. But at this point, there's nothing we can do to remove them. I mean, they're they're naturalized. They become a part of the native environment. The native fish have learned to live with them at some level. Would it be better if we remove them? Maybe. I mean, yeah, I'm sure the native fish would thrive. Could we remove them? That's very doubtful it's picking your battles we yeah if it, they've already naturalized just leave them alone but the ones that we can actually do something about focus all our energy on yeah like mike said it's just like with all these invasive species we got to find the ones that are bad and get rid of them you know i think that's pretty obvious from where we're at you know we're looking at your carp your zebra mussels your kudzu your wild hogs. I mean, these are the ones that are causing the most economic damage. We, just like any problem, start at what's worst, work your way down. We have problems out here. Nothing as bad as those four species. Let's tackle those. Use the knowledge we get from tackling those to work on other species. I mean, it's not going to be perfect, but we got to start somewhere if we focus all our efforts, we can work on one and then knock them down like dominoes. Something's always better than nothing, and you got to start somewhere. But uh, go- going back, besides going through your backpack with a hair comb and tweezers, what is the best way to kind of help stop invasive species? Like, like say, someone who's an aphid hiker or something like that. Um, I know some forest preserves have mats where you can wipe your feet. Are those actually useful, or are those just kind of cosmetic? Well, you know, I'm not too certain about that, but what I do, and uh, I, get, I get made fun of a lot, is if I'm out hiking and I see an invasive species, I just pull it. Because if you're on a trail, odds are it hasn't gone far off that trail, and I pull it. And I, my uh, fiancé will be like, people are looking at you. It's like... Yeah, and they think I'm weird, but they don't really know what I just did. Because, you know, everyone needs to educate themselves, but if every third hiker knew what belonged and what didn't, and we just pulled what didn't belong, 
I mean, pretty soon we'd have a pretty good looking ecosystem, pretty native. You know, it, it it's going to come down. That's the thing right now. Everyone has, you know, a good belonging, you know, a good feeling of being outside and connected to the environment, especially during this time where being outside maybe the only peace you can get. And as more and more people get accustomed to being outside and seeing these different plants and learning to tell which is bad and which is good, if we just everyone goes by to just pull the bad ones and becomes common practice just pull invasive species before long you know we don't need to worry about them it's going to be you know these plants have seeds that reproduce for a long time but if we normalize this in society of pulling invasives it just becomes a thing we do just like picking up trash and whatever just to help the environment it's all it's going to take the only bad thing about invasive species is it takes an educated population to get rid of it. That's all it takes. Well, every journey's got to start with one step, and I think we kind of brought a good point to the public is just educate yourself. Just know before you go into the forest reserve what's good, what's not, and if you see something, do something about it. And every little bit helps. So... Yeah, I'm going to throw out some good resources for wherever you're at. Um, I'd look up your local college. So Oregon, Oregon State University, Michigan, Michigan State. I mean, you get the picture. Your local forest preserves are going to have an agency that's going to help you tell what's right and what doesn't belong. I mean, your forest service, BLM, as BLM as in Bureau of Land Management, um, your department of forestry your fishing game whatever it is if you just go on their website they have the information there the government's just not going to get it to you they have it they have all the information you need you just got to find it i want to do a wide shout out to every organization every person who's dedicating time in normal times and in these weird times to help combat invasive species and help bring the world a little bit more calm and a little bit more tranquil and a little bit more how it's supposed to be. Big shout out to all you because y'all y'all are making the world a big difference. Yeah, well, that's the thing that me and my fiance talk about all the time is right now when we're all maintaining our social distancing and whatnot, what if instead of doing all these things we normally do, we maintained social distancing, went out to some of our favorite grounds, and just pulled invasive species. You don't have to be near anyone to do that. This might be a, a whole can of worms, which I'm not sure if you want to get into. But what do you think about the impact COVID's had on the combat invasive species? Because organizations can't go outside as much. Uh, people can't interact with as much people as much to help combat invasive species. I have the sinking feeling that invasive species are thriving in this time right now. What, what's your opinion on that? Um, I have, I have, I think invasive species are at or near where they used to be. Um, right now, land managers, people who work in natural resources, social distancing for us is like a part of the job. It's a perk, some would say. Uh, so we actually haven't had really been impacted by covid for the most part we may have to work from home but our home is outdoors anyway so doesn't really affect 
us the amount of money coming in does that's a different thing but one of the big drivers of invasive species is tourism with tourism down for the beginning of covid it might be a blessing in disguise however now that everything's kind of picking up people are coming traveling tourism's kind of picking up so i think it's kind of too early to say but i think it may have helped a little bit but now that it's dragging because people who work out there especially for the federal government may or may not be able to get out there and do their job as efficiently as before so i think first half of covid awesome really helped stop the spread of invasive weeds second half it's up for debate See, I'm gonna play devil's advocate because in my I I didn't know about the plant section, but I'm thinking with animals, I'm thinking COVID didn't help. Cause like, uh, say hunting uh, feral pigs, going back there or going to lionfish. Uh, lionfish, you need scuba gear, you need to go underwater. Yeah, a lot of people can do that solo, but there are organizations who are targeting that, and the organizations being federal state or privately owned have to practice social distancing might make it hard for a team of scientists to go out there and figure out the best way to remove evasive species or to track an invasive species that they have as a judas species so i think animals have increased during invasive uh, during this covid time at least invasive species Plant life, like you said, it seems like it's gone down, but we'll see in the later half. But I would be very curious if there's any studies or if there will be any statistics after all of this of what invasive species it did during. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see. Now, I can tell from our uh, our company is our treatment, our paying to kill or treat the PC term of invasive species has gone down. Uh, due to less demand of wood products, we don't have as much money to put into treating these invasive species, so we haven't had as much money to treat them. However, we have had money to treat our worst areas, so we've been able to focus on areas that are have a higher concentration of invasives, noxious weeds, and anything else. Um, so... It was kind of, we don't see as much weeds transported onto our land. However, we can't treat the weeds we want to treat. So I think it's a little too early to tell. But one of the biggest problems that we have is people bringing weeds to areas where we didn't have them. So, you know, we'll, I mean, it's going to take two, three years. That's the thing about natural resources that people don't understand is people want answers now. I mean, as humans, that's natural. I mean, we have Google. Google can give you an answer in less than a second. Natural resources, exactly. Sometimes you have to wait 10 or more years, usually 20 to 30 years to get an answer. And that's just something humans aren't able to do. But it's that's the thing about nature is it really doesn't give a shit about what you think. <laughs> that is true. Well, I think here's a pretty good wrapping point. I want to say thank you, Nick, for joining me on this adventure. And I suspect we'll very soon talk more about invasive species. Yep, I have no doubt about that. Again, I just want to do a big shout out to everyone who 
does even a small part of removing it in their back home of removing invasive species a little bit does make a difference and everyone just keep doing it yep i want to give a local shout out to our oregon department of forestry guys um appreciate everything you do awesome see you next time Thanks for listening to the Backyard Philosophy Podcast. We rarely finish a podcast without missing a point we wanted to bring up, so let us know what we forgot. And if you have a topic you want us to talk about, let us know at Backyard Philosophy on Instagram and Backyard Philosophy Podcast on Facebook.